Good morning. All right, let's begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you again for your goodness, your mercy, your love, your watch care. We ask that your spirit will join us. May we draw closer to you and understand your kingdom more fully. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number six in the quarterly, the uh, role of the, of, of the church in the community. And the title this week is Jesus Mingled with People. And it asks us to read the, uh, the Bible verse, Luke 15, 1 and 2. And uh, this is the verse. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. What do you think of this allegation? of the Pharisees and the lawyers, this allegation that he, he welcomes sinners and eats with them. True. Yeah, it was true, okay? What, but, okay, so it was a fact. He was doing that. Why, though, were the religious leaders upset that Jesus was mingling with tax collectors and sinners? Why did this disturb them? Because they had a caste system, and he wasn't supposed to be in that caste. So, so they have a caste system, he said. Think about today. Um, somebody is ministering to the poor, the needy, the, the, the unchurched, and, and the pastors and the, and the leaders, but they go, I can't believe it. They're, they're ministering to people who don't know, know Christ. No, we wouldn't say that, would we? We would. We would? Certain people. Certain people. Okay. So, so back in this context, what... Why did they consider this to be wrong? Was it simply caste? Like in India, it's caste, and certain people don't enter. Or is it more than caste? Spiritual defilement. Spiritual defilement. So they were, these people were looking at Jesus and said, we love him so much, we have concern for Jesus' soul, we don't want to see him defiling himself, and, and that's why they, they didn't want to see Jesus defiled? Okay, one person at a time. Okay, what were you saying? What they were really doing was finding one more fault that they could use to kill him. So they were finding a fault to kill him. So they actually weren't concerned for his soul. On the, but they were criticizing based on spiritual defilement, but not out of a love, were they? What were you going to say? Well, it goes back to the concept of, of the, the, the Pharisees. I mean, you know, the, the Pharisees just did not associate with those people. Yeah, so what? So they didn't. That's a fact. So they, Jesus wasn't bringing these so-called sinners, to the Pharisees' home and, and bringing them into their house. So why were they offended that Jesus was doing this? They could have felt guilty. Okay, this is where we're going. Yes. Do you think Jesus' behavior was exposing a hypocrisy in them? And in, in, in some level, they were feeling condemned that he was basically, by his actions, not validating their standards. We've decided as a religious authority that this is how we behave in our society. You aren't behaving in our way, so it condemns their authority and, and, and their values. Okay. What's implied in the statement is the Pharisees did not consider themselves sinners. Yes, it's also implied. If this group, this group is sinners and tax collectors and therefore should not be associated with. So with all that in mind, what is the basis of their value system? Or another way to say it is, what was the measuring device, what measuring stick, what barometer were the Pharisees and the lawyers using to measure the right and wrong of it? What standard were they comparing against? The law. The law? What law? Well, I mean, the Judaic law. Yes. You know, and when you look at the Old Testament, you can kind of see where they got that. Don't mingle with other people. They're going to they're gonna contaminate you. Don't intermarry with them. They're going to contaminate you. Don't bring their idols, blah, blah, blah. They were told to be separate, and boy, did they carry that to the extreme. And do you know the history of... of, of now, in the time of Solomon... Was Solomon this way, or did Solomon practice uh, American values of the of the of the uh, Constitution, freedom of religion? Did he allow his wives to practice freedom of religion? Did he, or did Solomon use the power of the state to coerce all his wives into Judaism, where he gave them freedom and even built shrines for them to let them express their religion the way they want? So he was a a freedom of religion person. But what happened? He, he sacrificed his own children. Yes, he ended up being seduced into that type of worship. And then the nation ends up following afterwards, the generations following. And they ultimately end up in captivity. And they ended up in captivity because they were worshiping false gods. Basic, basic thing. And then after the captivity, they came back committed to never do that again. We're never going to, to end it. And so what did they do? They ended up with this system of rules. <clears throat> Behavioral conformity. Uh, they, they approach these instructions, these guidelines, if you will, in a very 
impose law construct. These are rules you must keep or else. No comprehension of what they're trying to achieve. No understanding of their larger purpose. It's just do it or else. And when you focus one's attention with an imposed system of rules, where does that focus your attention? Yourself. On self. So they became very self-centered in their religion. They were more concerned with their own legal standing, as it was said earlier, whether they were contaminated or not contaminated, whether they, they didn't want to enter Pilate's house because then they, could, they couldn't keep the Passover. They really weren't concerned about the righteousness of the other person, the welfare of the other person. They were very, very willing to sacrifice and neglect and injure other people as long as they could keep the rules for themselves. Isn't this true? Do we ever do that today in, in, in Christianity? Sacrifice and injure others so that we can keep the rules. Go ahead. Pharisees and leaders, they had built a system where they thought it was the greatest in the world. And for Jesus, uh, bringing on the Good Samaritan, bringing him out as the hero of the story, it, um, you know, it countered them. Yes, and the Good Samaritan... When did he sacrifice a temple? Was he circumcised? What, what rituals did he do? Did he keep the Sabbath? Did he keep the Sabbath? All the stuff they valued, the Samaritan didn't do. The, the Levite and the priest did, but who was in the story, as you're saying, the one that was right with God? So, man looks where? Okay, and the Lord looks where? And that's what the story of the Samaritan is really saying. And the Pharisees and the lawyers were focused ex- exclusively, essentially, on the outward behavior. It doesn't matter the condition of your heart. In fact, they thought it was righteous if you had in your heart a desire for evil, but you had the willpower to say no. This was Paul in Romans and other places where he says, you know, I, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. As long as, if, if I lusted after my neighbor's wife, as long as I had the willpower not to act on it, that's righteousness. To be able to, to deny what you really want in your heart. That's what righteousness is. To want it in your heart, but to deny it. But then he learned from Christ that true righteousness is to not even have the desire in the heart. I don't, that, in fact, that becomes offensive. I get new desires, new motives. In fact, that's repulsive to me. So the Pharisees are operating on a very behavioral system. God looks in the heart. Can we tell the condition of someone's heart by their behavior? No. The Bible says, by their fruits ye shall know them, but does fruits mean exclusively behavior? Well, what would you say of a man who organized his own militia in the community, got his own militia together, and went and attacked a caravan of a sovereign nation and took all their assets in the, and killed many people in the process? Righteous man? Well, consider Abraham. Abraham got his militia together and went out over the sovereign nations that had attacked Sodom, if you remember, and the other cities, and had called Lot and, and, and the other people captive and took off. The, these were sovereign nations. Abraham gets his own militia together, goes out and attacks them, leads them into battle, kills many people. He paid tithe, so that's okay. <laughs> and he did pay tithe on all of his... Uh, we'll get to that point in a moment. So we look at his behavior. Thou shalt not kill. Abraham did. This is war. Do we believe in, in war ever? But there's a difference between war and thou shalt not kill. Yeah, but this wasn't war because he's not a sovereign nation. He can't declare war. He's a militiaman. He's just a local guy who... who, who, who he, did, dec- he did it for the clans environment. They invaded his clan's territory. They took his clan's family, flocks, possession. They did. So but this is war. Out, out of a sovereign, another sovereign Correct. government. So this is, this is war between two sovereign governments. Abraham was the, the spiritual and material leader for his clan. So, so war justifies killing. At times, yes. War is not covered by thou shalt not kill. Really? I don't think so. Well, his was a rescue mission. Really, and they were, he was out to rescue people. Yes, that's murder. Yeah. Yeah. Was Abraham a person who liked to kill? Was he bloodthirsty? No. Or was he a person who valued life and wanted to spare life? Yes. And how do we know? We do know. And we're pleading for Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. There you go. God himself comes, I'm going to destroy Sodom, and Abraham says, they deserve it. Get them good. 
No, he argues for. So we see Abraham's heart. So this action on Abraham's part to rescue Lot, this was not an action intending to kill as many people and make them punish. It's an act of vengeance. This was a rescue mission. Yes, and so uh, the reason I point this out because it, there's a contrast to simple behavior. On a very simplistic, superficial level, he got a militia together, he went out, attacked, he killed, that's bad. That's a very superficial way of looking. This is why many people look at life. But that's the outward appearance. When we look at the heart, we understand that Abraham's heart is revealed in many things, and we can even know a little deeper after it was all said and done, and all the wealth comes in. How did Abraham handle the wealth when the kings of Sodom wanted to reward him for this? What did he do? He wouldn't take even a, a shoestring. That's right. Wouldn't even take a shoestring, he said. Why wouldn't he do it? He didn't want them thinking that they had made him rich. What's the ways of the world when we go to war? Spoils. To the victor belong the spoils. To the victor belong the... Let's enrich ourselves through this method. See, he didn't want to validate war and killing as a way to aggrandize self, to promote self, to build self up. This was, this was, this is not the way. In fact, after a battle, don't most human beings, after they win the battle, after they win the battle, don't most human beings feel good, feel empowered, feel rewarded, feel blessed by God. God was on our side. Um, and they celebrate and have a great celebration of their victory. Was it possible that Abraham was not celebrating? He was saddened. He was grieving. While he knew he needed to rescue Lot and the others, was, was he saddened by the circumstances that led to this action? Was his heart grieving over the need to do this? For instance, do uh, doctors ever find it necessary to amputate a limb in order to save a life? And after they amputate the limb, do they celebrate? Yay, we just cut off an arm! No, they grieve. They do it because of the circumstances are sad and they want to save a life. And I think this is Abraham's view. How many people today view Abraham's actions through the lens of something grievous to do, necessary to save, but it would have been much better if it wasn't necessary? There's a lot of the soldiers who are depressed because of what they have to do. Yeah. They do it because they want to save lives afterwards. Or how many see today conflict and war and battle as something to celebrate? Is it just physical war? What about political war? Hmm. So back to the religious leaders in Christ's day. All this is to come back to religious leaders in Christ's day and how they criticize Christ. What did they value and why did they do it? Why were they criticizing Christ? Were the leaders valuing selflessness and focusing on the motives of the heart? Were they doing that? Or were they focusing on the externals, the rituals, the legal forms, the ceremonies? Yeah, they were focusing on the outward appearance. What did Christ value? So in Jewish culture, how did the Jewish leaders and most of the whole nation, in fact, see lepers? How did they see them? Not just unclean, it was more than that. Untouchables, why were they untouchables? How were they seen in their relation with God? Cursed. Cursed. And also they feared that they would get it. So, so they were cursed of God and untouchable, outcast. How did Christ see them? In fact, they were often seen as being punished by God, weren't they? Yeah. Remember the story of Miriam? Okay, when they were challenging and she, she had, gets leprosy. So they see this as punishment from God even. How did Christ see them? In need of healing. In need of healing. How do we see sinners today? Do we as Christian folk look at people who are in sin and see them as criminals in need of punishment? Or do we see them as, as people sick in heart in need of healing? Does it make a difference how we approach someone? If we approach someone and we see them as a criminal who needs to be caught and punished, or we see them as someone who's sick who needs to be healed and restored, does that make a difference in our attitude as we approach them? It may not look different on the outside to what you do. You mean the intervention could be the same, Correct. potentially? Correct. Okay. I like what we said a while back. I think it was about the Chinese uh, or some Asian group's form of punishment. I think it was you who was saying that they did their punishment uh, with restoration in mind. It was a, a different way than what we handled it. Restoration to the family. Uh, from what they had done? The, the death of a thousand cuts definitely doesn't qualify. No. 
So if we're going to be like Jesus to people, and we're to represent Jesus to people, can we represent Jesus to people if we approach them as, as criminals in need of punishment? Or must we approach them as people who are sick in need of healing? How much of evangelism approaches it as you're condemned on death row and God is rightly required to punish you for sin? Do we approach people like Jesus when we approach it this way? Is there scripture to support the idea that we are actually sick, spiritually sick in need of healing? Is there scripture that supports that idea? Anybody think of any? All four of the Gospels. All four of the Gospels, the whole story is okay. Sure. I like Isaiah 1, 4 through 6. Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evil doers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why should you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there's no soundness, there's no health, there's no wellness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. You know, this, this is what the Scripture is trying to teach. We are spiritually sick in need of healing. And I think all Scripture teaches that same perspective. Sunday's lesson asks us to look at, uh, the, it takes the first paragraph, uh, and it uh, takes a paragraph actually from the Ministry of Healing about how Jesus approached people and makes a, a, a kind of a, a checklist of, of ways to evangelize. And it's, this is the paragraph from the Ministry of Healing. Christ's methods alone will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them, ministered to their needs, and won their confidence. He bade them, follow me. And then they give the list. Mingling with people, sympathizing with people, ministering to their needs, and which results in them becoming confident in him and the invitation to follow. What do you think about the list? Does anybody else get that feel? Okay, it's a checklist of steps. Okay, go out there and mingle with people. After you mingle with them, then sympathize them. Okay, I'm mingling, I'm sympathizing. And then, you, and then after that, we're going to do something. Okay, yo, we're going to do this ministry, and now we're going to call you. It, it, he says when, it, when you just listed a checklist to, with the goal to call, it seems manipulative. What do you think? It, it, could it be used that way? So, just go back to the motive of the heart. Do we really care about the people? Or is the motive to do this, we need to increase the number of people in our tithe base? That's our motive. We get, and this is the checklist to get more people to join our organization so we can have a bigger system and have more tithe and, and therefore we can convert more. Or even in some sense of, of a, I, I want to say, twisted idea of salvation that... They're all lost, and we have to get them to go through the rituals that we think are the right rituals, the right baptism, the right attestations to, um, you know, the sinner's prayer and so forth. So we're going to do this so they can do that, and we can check them off as saved. You know, much of Christian history, salvation was simply a public declaration. And so, you know, in the Middle Ages, when they would convert people, I don't know if you've, if you've studied some of the history of, of England when the, when the Norse people were invading England and there was the battle between the, the pagan Danes and the Christians and they battled back and forth and um, Godfrey, one of the pagan Danes, was eventually became Christian. And how did he become a Christian? Well, he was defeated in battle and they were going to execute him and his men except he publicly accepted Jesus and was baptized and, and all he had to do was go through that ritual. And once he was baptized, they accepted him as a good Christian. And all his people were saved because of that, and he became a Christian governor and ruler. There was, and, all, and that was it. You just have to go through that ritual. Now you're a Christian. Well, the same concept was in, even in biblical times, when a country was defeated, it was their gods that were defeated. It was the defeating gods that were presumed to be more powerful than the gods that were defeated, and that's how he, that promulgated. So is there a difference? Have you ever felt somebody in your life experience, you could tell they genu- genuinely cared about you? 
They really wanted what was best for you. They didn't want something from you. They wanted your life to be the healthiest and the best it could be. And when you really experience someone that has that real concern for you, what does it, does it push you away from them or does it draw you to them? It draws you. You can't go and do this checklist if your agenda is to get them to do something for you. I need to get them to do a public declaration. I've got, I'm a, I got so many, you know, this quarter, I, I need to get so many baptisms in order to check off, you know, for our church where we set a goal for 100 baptisms. We've got 98. We need two more. And I'm doing this Bible study for this couple. And we begin to, you ever seen that? We got to pressure them to, 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 to meet our goal of 100 baptisms. And I need you to commit to this. And, you know, it, that attitude, does that draw you to or does that push you away? Yeah. So I think, you know, Christ's approach, he wasn't, what did he say? I did not come to be served, but to serve. You know, he was constantly seeking the welfare of others, and this drew to him, and it was genuine, and it was real. Bottom section. It says, dwell on the amazing truth that one who made all... Uh, yeah, the one who made all created things. Jesus took upon himself human flesh and in the f- flesh mingled with and ministered to fallen humanity as, it, as he did. How should this amazing truth, so full of hope, impact how we mingle with and minister to others? Does so, so anyone want to share, if you spent time to contemplate what it means that the creator became human and dwelt among us? Have you really contemplated that? H- have you thought, if you lived 2,000 years ago, do you think it would have been easy for you to accept Jesus as, as God? I saw the movie Risen recently. Anybody seen the movie Risen? It's very, very well done. Um, uh, of the post-resurrection um, description of things that happened in Acts. And, and the premise is a, uh, the report comes back to Pilate that Jesus has risen. And Pilate um, directs one of his centurions to investigate the allegations. And, uh, and it unfolds the history of, of the guards that were there who then were paid by the priests to lie. And that's all in there. And, and, the, and the appearances that Jesus had to the, um, to the uh, New Testament church and, and the, uh, you know, the, miracle of, the miracle of raising some of the dead. And, so, so, and the centurion's investigating all this. And it really brought home to me how difficult it would be to believe Jesus was fully God at that time. The mindset that they had been inundated with in terms of what they were looking for or taught to be looking for was not how Christ came. Even so, even with the mindset that we have, do you understand he was so completely human? Yeah. So completely human. And this it brings it out that you actually see him interacting there, there was nothing that's, and Ellen White makes this clear, nothing in his demeanor, in his physical presentation, set him apart from other human beings. He did not want people to believe based on some physical manifestation of glory or something like this. It would ruin his whole mission. And in fact, we have scripture to support this idea. Jesus asked his disciples, who does men say I am? Oh, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're one of the other prophets. Who do you say I am? Peter says. You're the, you're the, you're the uh, Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but my Father in heaven. In other words, he didn't figure this out on his own. He didn't figure this out just because of his own human ingenuity, his human... Um, IQ points is human discernment. I, I wasn't going to suggest it would have taken spiritual insight, Holy Spirit. And in fact, John the Baptist, we're told, probably wouldn't have recognized Jesus except he was told the Spirit would come down in the form of a dove and settle on him. And it was that sign that let John the Baptist know he was the one. I think it would have been very hard. It would have had a heart that was open to truth that would have been brought under conviction of the Spirit to recognize it, not just to be able to walk up and see a crown on his head that we recognize, you know, the Queen Elizabeth. How do we recognize her? We recognize her because of status and position, yes. Well, actually, John the Baptist kind of told his disciples, this is the one before he baptized him. So I think he really recognized him some other way. They were cousins. Well... No, but you know, actually the testimony John said is, I was told that the Spirit would come down in the form of a dove, and I testify this is the one. 
I, and I have seen that. Seen that. Um, Monday's lesson. I think this is an interesting lesson. It's the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. What is the difference between the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son? What lessons do we learn from these parables? I'm going to ask you to put your thinking caps on here. Yes. God is out to save us, whether we realize it or not. But all three things were valuable. God is, no question. God is out to save us, whether we realize it or not, and all three things are valuable. So let's go through these. The lost coin. Let me ask you some questions. Did the lost coin know it was lost? No. Are there people lost today who don't know they're lost? Did the, did the one who owned the coin go searching for the lost coin? Are we today, do we have a role to be God's agents to search for those people who are lost who don't know they're lost? How? Now put your thing, how? What is the method to reach the lost who don't know they're lost? To be a living example. To be a living example. Other thoughts? That's always correct. Always correct, yes. Other thoughts? Would this be the traditional classic missionary? Taking the gospel to those who've never heard it and didn't even know there was a gospel to be brought to them. They're lost, don't even know they're lost, and so we present the gospel to people who've never heard it. Would that, would that be maybe this group, the, the lost coin? What about the lost sheep? Did the sheep know it was lost? Yeah. Most likely the sheep did know it was lost. It was away, it was scared, it was frightened. Did the sheep know its way home? Are there people today who know they're lost, but they have no idea how to get home? The sheep might have even known his way home. It was caught in the thicket. Or, you know, Perhaps. Trapped by the brambles of... I like that. I like that. Other people know they're lost, and, and so in that sense, they still don't know how to get out of the thicket. Right. So, so they know they're lost. They either don't know their way home, or they don't know how to get out of the trap or the thicket or the ditch that they've fallen into. They don't know the way out of their problem. Are there people then who know that there's a, there's a better way, but they don't know how to find that better way? There's a healing remedy, but they don't know what that remedy is. They're powerless to escape. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's pointed out by David in Psalm 23rd, and he was a shepherd, was just how stupid and dumb sheep are. And the analogy is that we are like sheep in terms of the big picture. We don't understand. We're sheep who've gone astray. But even a dumb sheep, when they stray from the flock... Don't they often have some awareness? Don't they begin crying out? Yeah. So they, they, so they're dumb. They're dumb in the sense they don't, they don't know where they are. They don't know how to fix the problem. They don't know how to get themselves. But they may know they're lost. Yeah, and they, and they often will know when they're in danger. A wolf has shown up. That sheep will know that. Yeah. Do, do we have people in the world who are that way? They're lost. They're trapped. And, and, and they might even go the wrong direction. Uh, they're frightened. And you see a sheep might, might run into over a cliff rather than away from a cliff because they're frightened and scared. The, we, see, we see people in society today who, who actually take actions out of their fear, out of their insecurity, that actually injure them further, injure themselves further. Yeah, maybe run over cliffs. Well, one of the things about sheep is that the Bible says, it's my sheep, not my voice. So even if it's trapped... The Lord will still try to help them to hear His voice. And so let's say, let's 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 unpack this one a little more. Are there people like the lost sheep who are lost? They know they're lost, and they end up being taken advantage of by people who present themselves to help them. Wolves in sheep's clothing. Let's unpack that one. How? What kind of exploitation happens? Certainly the gross exploitation that is criminal even in a sinful world. Many of the people who get exploited in the various traffickings of human beings and so forth are taking advantage of lost sheep, aren't they? And, and, and that's pretty obvious. And even the world, the sinful world recognizes the horror of that. Let's, let, let's not spend time on that one. But what about the exploitation and entrapment from those, because those people showing up really aren't there to help them. 
But there are others, people showing up that are really, that, that think maybe even in their own mind that they're there to help them. David Koresh. David Koresh, okay. A good example. Do people who are lost sheep sometimes end up in cults? And the cult leaders, some of the cult leaders, some of the cult participants might actually think this is the way out. Is it the way out? How about, do they ever end up in religions that burden them with increased guilt and increased works and increased works with no peace, no joy, no real healing in their life? Did Christ himself actually say that to the Pharisees? That you burden people. And you won't lift a finger to help lift the burdens off of people with your requirements and your rituals and your, and your burdens you put on them. Does this happen today? Do we see in the world today religious organizations seeking to save the lost sheep that actually end up burdening the sheep? Or leading them farther away. Or leading them farther away. Seek the world over to find a convert. Remember, we talked about that last week. So, do we, specifically this class and in our ministry and those who, who cherish what we're sharing, do we have a message for the lost, who know they're lost, that will actually heal, that will actually deliver, that will actually lead them to being found again? Do we? How, now's your challenge. How would you tell them? What would you say to them? What is the message and how would you present it to them? To that lost sheep. The message is love. The message is love. And I guess I would probably present it as Christ accepts you right where you are. It doesn't matter what you're doing right now. Thoughts about that? You go back to Sunday's lesson. Oh, okay, wait, wait, she just said something else. It's not just a schmooze fest if it's all good. It's speaking the truth in love. Yeah, this is, this is one, it's absolutely a message of love, but the Holy Spirit is not just the spirit of love exclusively. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of love and truth. Why is, lo- why is love and truth necessary together? What's the problem with love only? Indulgence. It can result in indulgence. Um, but what else? The truth sets it right, so you're not delusional. Okay, the truth heals, the truth sets right. What happens if you have love but no truth? What's the danger there? We talked about powers before, different types of power, coercive power, for instance. There is power in love, but what defeats love? There's a power that can defeat love. So you found a lie. Yeah. yeah. Selfishness. Selfishness directly cannot defeat love, but something can. In the Garden of Eden, what was it that, that defeated love in Eden? Deception. When you believe a lie, when you believe a lie about the, about the person that you're in a trust-love relationship with, and you believe that person is your enemy, you believe that person's out to get you, you believe that person is going to hurt you and injure you, then love is fractured and breaks down. Love and trust is broken when lies are believed. That's why we have to have the combined love and truth. Because when love and truth are combined, then lies have no power. Lies can't fracture. Lies can't undermine. And, well, and, and since we're coming from a position, unlike Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve came from a position where there were no lies operating in their head. We're coming from a position where we have a lot of lies operating in their head. Lies that we tell ourselves even. And so we need love and truth not only to be secure, but to heal, to restore. And so we have a message that is a message of love, but we have a message of how reality works. A message that can actually help a person see what's really wrong inside themselves. Because if the diagnosis is wrong, then the treatment is... Devastating. Usually wrong. And you know, this, uh, this past week, my brother ended up in the hospital um, with a swollen foot that was red. He had a history of osteomyelitis years ago. It's an infection of the bone. And you know, you're told that that can sometimes recur. And so he ends up in the hospital, terrible pain in his foot, red, swollen, um, and they're concerned. And they initially diagnosed that osteomyelitis had returned. So he'd been on, for other reasons, low-dose steroids. And so they took the steroids away because we have infection. Infection suppress, uh, uh, steroids suppress immune response, and so it can allow infection to grow stronger. So they took the steroids away, put him on antibiotics, and he got worse. And his felt swell whereas The pain got significantly worse. And so they, after a couple of days, they biopsied it, and he had crystals in it. And it ended up being gout instead, even though his blood levels were normal. 
So it was an unusual presentation. They immediately took away the antibiotics and gave him high-dose steroids, and within a few hours, everything started getting better. What's the point? If your diagnosis is wrong, then your treatment is usually wrong. Spiritually, the same thing. Much of Christianity is operating on a wrong diagnosis. We're in legal trouble. We have a legal problem. Rather than we have a condition of heart. We have a message that says God is our creator. He knows exactly what's broken in each one of us, and he has a solution that can fix it. We have to first come back and we talk about the sheep that are lost that don't know they're lost or don't know their way out of the ditch they're in. This is like often addicts. They know something's wrong. They know something's, that something's broken. They don't know how to get a fix. And step one of the 12 steps, we have to be diagnosed first. We admit that we are powerless over our addiction and our lives are unmanageable. We have to accept our unmanageable and sick diagnosis. And, and step number two, we admit that a power higher than ourselves can restore us to sanity. We have, so, so the first two steps are for the sheep that are lost. And we have a message. Yep, all humanity, and you can normalize this. This isn't just for addicts. All humanity, born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We have a condition of fear and security, selfishness in our heart that we, we didn't choose, that we were born with. But there's a power who can heal and fix what's broken in us. And then, let's go to the third. The synthesis between truth and love, uh, I think, is critical. We've already seen that the belief in a lie can destroy um, love, but also truth that's not presented in love can be equally destructive. That's right. Like uh, when Lucifer was impersonating Samuel, he told Saul the truth. He said, you and your sons will die on the battlefield tomorrow. This was, this was truth, but it was not presented in any sort of restorative love manner. It was meant to push Saul deeper into the darkness that he had uh, he created for himself and, and lead him to despair. And it wasn't a truth. It was a truth only if Saul persisted on the path that he was on. Correct. It wasn't an inevitable truth. Saul could have repented, gone back, not gone into war. Saul, uh, he could have abdicated the throne, turned it over to David at that point. He had a lot of options besides going into battle. So this was not an inevitable truth. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's go to the lost son. Did the son know he was lost? No. No. Not at first. That's right. Initially, the son did not know he was lost. When he first left the estate, was hanging out with his buddies and stuff. Did there come a point when the son did know he was lost? Oh, yeah. And did the son know his way home? Yes. Hey, now, you notice the difference in the lost. The lost coin doesn't know it's lost. The lost sheep knows it's lost, doesn't know how to get out of the problem. The lost son knows it's lost eventually, not at first, and also knows how, how to get back home. Are there people who have gotten lost who don't know they're lost at first because the circumstances are so good in life that they think everything's going well? Yes, there are. And are there people who have wandered from God's design for life, his estate, <laughs> who uh, eventually found themselves at rock bottom, the proverbial pigsty? And are there people in the pigsty who do know the way back? They know the choices they must make. They know the actions they need to initiate, the choice that they have to, to choose to, to, to do before any help can be given to them. They have to choose. Are there people like that? You can't help them before. Why can you not help them before they choose to get on the road home? Because if you help them before, you only give them more fuel to harm themselves with. If the father in the prodigal story would have sent his agents, he was a very wealthy man still. He had lots of servants who worked for him. He could have sent his agents out to, to just keep kind of a distant eye on the son. And when the son ended up uh, penniless and in the pigsty, he could have sent him pizza from Pizza Hut and gave him room in a Motel 6 each night. He could have done that for the son. And if he had done that for the son, what would the son have thought? Hey, I'm still making it. I'm getting by. Don't need to go home. I'm, 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 I'm doing great out here. And so the lost son needed to be left where he was until the son chose to come home. There's a big difference, especially when you have an understanding like that, that you, know, you don't want to encourage dependence, a, a negative dependence. That's right. That's a very intelligent thing. So, with that in mind, what is our role, our role, think you're your role in dealing with the three types of the lost? What's your role? Know the difference. Oh, number one, thank you. 
you have to be able to know what you're dealing with. Because if you don't know whether you're dealing with the lost coin, the lost who don't know they're lost, the lost sheep who know they're lost and they want to come back, they have no idea how to get back, the lost son who's lost and hasn't come to the point they even want to get back yet, and they have to come to that point. If you don't know what you're dealing with, then you actually may cause further problems. You may injure rather than help. So you have to have some discernment. And I would suggest that discernment comes the same way Peter knew that Jesus was the Christ. There has to be a personal connection with, the, with God and the Holy Spirit, and you have to have some understanding of how God's kingdom works, now the reality works, and some connection where the Spirit can enlighten you to know in any given situation. There's not a cookie-cutter rule that you can say in every circumstance that you can just go and apply, is there? Yeah, you know, I, I think in the big picture there is. One of, the, one of the points I wanted to make here, too, is that um, so many times, because of the old way of approaching uh, salvation or, or pro- approaching the presentation of Jesus to people, they all make it such a warm, fuzzy, you know, touchy-feely type of thing, you know, that it, it, gets, it gets lost in sentimentality. Yes. And what we teach here... <coughs> in sentimentality. This is a very intelligent way of approaching the salvation that God has to offer through Jesus. And it's about actually making it applicable to our lives here and now. It's not heavenly life insurance policy, which is much of Christianity. Much of Christianity is, say this in his prayer, claim the blood of Jesus, have it applied to your record books in heaven, so at the second coming you get eternal life. doesn't really have any impact on how you live your life today. Just confess your sins, all sins, past, present, and future, are now paid for. You are eternally saved. Nothing can shake you from it. So it doesn't matter what problems and sins you fall into from this point forward. It's all good. It's all covered under the blood. Heavenly life insurance policy. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, in, in the bottom of the lesson, it says, Have you ever avoided witnessing to a person who would likely not fit well in your church? What would it take for you and your church to find sufficient grace to embrace those sinners? Does it ever happen? Do we ever avoid witnessing and offering hope to people because we don't want them in our communities? I know Chrissy and I have visited a church, at least one I can think of, if not more than one, where it was very clear. It was a small church, not a lot of members. But it was very clear that we weren't part of that organization and we weren't welcome back. Because this was their family church, basically, and they, their, their ancestors had established that church generations before, and who were we to think we could come visit in their church? You ever been to a church like that? Yes. Yeah. So, the question, who would we avoid witnessing to? Why would we do this? Would we avoid offering healing medicine to a person who was sick that would actually help them? Would we avoid that? If the person was sick, we have medicine, would we, would we avoid that? Oh, we, I'm not gonna, we don't want you to get well. We want you to die. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Okay, so what's this mean, don't cast your pearls before swine? She brought up the lesson. We have to unpack it. What's being cast? It's not don't cast your criti- Get your mind. It doesn't say don't cast your criticisms. Don't cast your, uh, cast your negativisms. Don't, don't cast your, your anger before. It doesn't, uh, it don't cast your pearls. What are pearls? Your pearls of wisdom. Your pearls of truth. Your pearls of love. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Now, I wasn't going to, this was going to be coming at the end of what we're going to talk about, but we, she brought it up, so let's deal with it right now. Are there people we don't actually witness to? Jesus before Pilate, did he really witness? Jesus before Caiaphas, was he witnessing to Caiaphas at the trial? He kept silent. He kept silent. He kept silent. Why was he keeping silent? Because he knew that anything he said, they were going to twist and use against him as an allegation. There was no openness, no interest for truth, no interest for pearl. There was no in- introspection. There was no willing to look at themselves. These people had already closed their hearts, hardened their hearts, and they were simply looking to abuse the person. So when you're dealing with somebody who is intent on doing harm, those are the people you just, because they're, they're, not, they're not open to be witnessed to. Okay. Wendell, you wanted to say something. You were asking if there were people we didn't witness to or bring into our church. There are certain wards of the hospital where you would not want to take a sick person. Because? Those wards are reserved for other contaminated individuals who would further infect people 
if you brought them in there. So, so for example, there are hemonc wards, which are, you cannot take an infected child in there because you will do damage to those around you. So the other people then that we don't witness to or bring into our group are those who we believe with evidence are persistently refusing any treatment and are actually seeking to harm and injure those in your community. That, that, are, that are willful and intentional in doing harm to those around them. In, in the spiritual sense. That's what the, we, we, we can't have you fellowship here. You're, you're bringing pornography material and sharing it with the youth at, at church. You, can, you can't come. We, we, we wouldn't let them come fellowship if they were doing that. You're bringing marijuana and distributing at church. You, you, you can't come. I mean, we wouldn't allow that, would we? Okay, how about, you know, at some point there's a line drawn if people were intentional in doing harm. To undermining. There might, might also be certain ideas being you're holding seances with the young people on Friday night worships. You can't you can't lead the children's division anymore. Wouldn't we do that? You you got Ouija boards that you're playing with the kids with. You, you can't do that. We would draw lines, wouldn't we? Yes, but this would this is intentional, purposeful, and uh, and, a, and an unwillingness to actually be be, be returned. Let's go back to those to to another reason though. How about if we have come, whether consciously or unconsciously, to recognize that the gospel that we share doesn't really change people's lives. Is there gospels presented? Paul talked in Galatians about, does anybody come to another gospel? Let's fall. Are, there, are there presentations of Christianity that actually have no power to change people's lives? And, and if, if that's the system we're in and, and intuitively recognize these people are not going to change, they just may become part of our membership, but they're going to have the same issues and the same problems. Is that maybe a reason that we don't witness because we don't want those problems here because we know that, that our message doesn't heal? If we actually believed and understood that if they're willing, the message and the gospel of Jesus Christ does transform and heal, might that cause us to bring, invite more people in? Now, with all that in mind, imagine that we find a sick individual and we begin providing treatment to a willing person who's sick and the treatment is curative, it will cure them. Is wellness achieved instantly? Or want, even to the person who is willing, who is participating with the healing remedy, is there a process where they still have symptoms? Might they still cough up phlegm, have diarrhea, have vomiting, even while they're getting well? Might that happen? And what might that look like in the spiritual application? And if you haven't been in healthcare, I can tell you when you're treating, treating people who are in the process of getting well, they can still have symptoms that are repulsive to the healthcare provider. Have you ever had somebody cough phlegm up in your face? It's repulsive. Have a pineal cyst explode in your face? Yes, pineal cyst explode in your face. Uh, GI bleeder, anybody have an explosive GI bleeder? Okay, it's not fun. It's, it's repulsive. Do you hate the patient though? No, you still work with them. So they can have symptoms that we find very repulsive and even offensive. And sometimes I've seen healthcare providers that have to turn their head and vomit because they get a reflex response that's so offensive. But that doesn't mean we turn away from the patient, right? What's that look like in a spiritual sense? Do we have people that come into fellowship who are partaking of Jesus Christ, who have been so battered and bruised by the world, that they still have sickness of heart, fear, insecurity, selfishness that can come out. And how might it come out? While they're getting well. Might it come out by saying hurtful things? Might it come out in acts of insensitivity? Might it come out in words that are angry? Might it come out in criticism or defensiveness or accusations toward others? Might it? Does this mean they're not getting well? Or could it mean there's a lot of healing to do? Remember Mary Magdala? You know, it's suggested, you know, in, in, in Mark chapter 16, it says that he cast seven demons out of her. Mark chapter 16, verse 9. And in the books of Ages, it's not seven demons at one time, it's stated seven times. Seven times she had heard his rebuke of the demons. Seven several times. So it wasn't one time, like the legion, seven demons. It's seven times. And it's implied that she came to Christ and he cast out a demon. And then she fell back into some old behaviors. And, and he came again and cast out. And he came again and cast out. And she kept slipping and going back. But she kept coming. She was participating in the process. 
And you have to wonder, is the seventh literal or symbolic? Yeah, yeah, regardless, the method, the point being is, she wasn't well after one encounter. And Christ didn't cast her off. She was still struggling. Are we able to see past the immediate behaviors of someone who may be behaving in ways that are offensive and hurtful to realize that there's a heart being healed? Are we able to do that? Can we mingle with people who are struggling or do we get our feelings hurt and run away? Tuesday's lesson. When is it casting pearls in the divorce line? At what point do you say, uh, so I'm covered with stinky pus. Yeah. The patient's initial response is, I'm so sorry. Of course, she had nothing. It was not her fault. But she recognizes the grief that it caused me, and she's apologetic. And uh, but if, So if you're dealing with people who keep kicking you and keep vomiting on you or whatever, at what point are you supposed to say, well, maybe this isn't my mission field because I just can't do this anymore? Or do you just pray for more strength? As the person keeps puking on you. So, so, so I think you've already kind of alluded to the difference. What is the discernment? It, cre- it creates discernment. So what are the symptoms? You've gone to pyanalysis, the pus. Okay, that's a physical symptom. Pretty easy to look at. Pretty easy to distinguish. Pretty easy to, but what, what's that pus look like when it's coming out of the character? What's that look like when it's coming out of the character? I think the Holy Spirit fishes out like out of like you're, you're like a lake, and it fishes out the rotting cars or, or whatever bicycles, whatever. In its time, and um, you know, basically, if it was to do it overnight, you'd be like a freak of nature. Thoughts about that? Anyone? So, how do you tell the difference? It's it, it's not in the immediate moment. The people who have character problems and are angry in the immediate moment, look at Peter. Peter denied Christ three times. Denied him, in cursing at one point. And then he afterwards, he went out and wept and had a period of time of reflection and remorse that came. Okay, And then after that, pardon? Jesus saw his heart. Jesus knew. Yes, Jesus saw his heart, but, but the rest of them didn't. And then later, he still wasn't right. He, later, he, he still had some pride issues and fear of rejection issues going on that Paul had to confront him publicly. Does that mean he was cast off and he was a person? No, because there was a process where in between those moments of weakness, you see a desire to grow. You see him putting himself in positions to be, to be ministered to, to. He comes back to Christ at the beach, for instance, and so forth. And you see that happening. So people can have these moments where these ugly traits of character, Paul himself writes in Romans chapter 7, sometimes the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. Oh, what a wretched man am I? Who's going to save me from this body of death? And this is a, a, a person who I believe is already in a saving relation with Jesus Christ, but he's talking about, we come to a saving relation with Jesus Christ, our old habit patterns, neurobiological reflexes that are deeply ingrained and, and conditioned responses. You know what conditioned responses are, where we have kind of automated reactions in certain situations, we just reflexively react. Those things are not worked out at the moment you accept Jesus Christ as your, sa- as your Savior. Oftentimes, there's, you, you have those behaviors come up again, but then afterwards, there's times of reflection. You go, no, that's not what I wanted to do, Lord. I'm so so sick of behaving this way. Who's going to fix me? Think, think of Paul too, or Saul when he, you know. But those before swine, excuse me, those before swine, they don't have that reflective attitude. They justify themselves. Well, they deserved what they got. They, they in fact, if, if they if they said that to me again, I'd give them, I'd give them twice as much. Yeah. Okay, that's the difference. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Saul, when he was struck with that light on his way to Damascus, uh, took quite a, a, a sizable amount of time out before he was really vocal or, or you know, interactive with uh, people. And I think it took that time for him to really process and for others to process what had happened to him. Because if he just flipped all of a sudden, then somebody would say, whoa, wait a minute. That's another good point. Excellent point. I, I think we have some really interesting stuff in Tuesday's lesson, but we're going to skip Tuesday because we're running low on time. I'm going to get to something Wednesday's lesson, so I encourage you to look at the notes. Um, the lesson is about how do we actually mingle in the world without being corrupted by the world? How do we mingle in the world without being corrupted by the world? The lesson notes errors on two extremes. The error on the extreme of the person who cloisters themselves away from the world and in, in uh, monasteries or other places where they don't even enter or or, or religious ghettos where you only associate with people of your same denominational background and that's it. You don't associate with anybody else. Or you are so extreme to connect to the world that you get pulled away from God and become very worldly yourself. Those are the extremes on either side. Wisdom, 
would uh, is, is this is what wisdom what wisdom would you share with someone? How they find that balance where you're in the world but not of the world. You associate with the world but you aren't pulled down by the world. And as I thought about this week, and we don't have time for a long discussion because we're only at three minutes to go. Is um, are there certain requirements requirements that you have to have before you're able to to actually fulfill that mission. And I, I, I'm not going to say this is exclusive, but I think I found a couple that are absolutely necessary. If you don't have these, you're not going to be able to do it. One, it seems to me it's a requirement that you cannot share with someone something you don't know or possess. That before you can be successful in a witness to the world, you've actually kind of come into a knowledge of Jesus Christ yourself, an experience with him, his actual true nature, character, methods, principles. You have to have that experience in your heart, not just in your head. If you don't have it, you know, you can't share it, can you? I, I, I promise you don't want to come to me to get lessons in art. Okay, I don't possess that knowledge at all. Okay, It would not be the person, or, or lessons in music. You would not want to come to me for that. I don't have that to share. Okay, You have to have it in order to share. So that's one thing. Second thing, we must have some level of spiritual maturity, health, before we can be a healer spiritually to other people. Those who are still so wounded, so broken, so much in pain, in crisis, in need, so empty, so lonely, that they can't see past their own hurt, are not yet in a position to handle the stress of interacting with others and sharing the maturity of Christ. So persons, and the reason for this, if you're still wounded, still empty, still needy, then you're seeking relationships to get to get approval, to get love, to get validation, to get acceptance, to, to, and sometimes perhaps to get fame, to get wealth, to get security. And those people uh, in that approach, because they're still so insecure and wounded, are still so self-referenced that they live in fear of not getting, fear of rejection, fear of abandonment, fear of failure, and thus they're constantly vulnerable in their interactions and their relationships to compromise what they know is true in order to get acceptance. They're not ready to witness in the world. They will be pulled away by the world. But the mature, so in order to to successfully do this, we have to be mature enough. We have to have a knowledge of of God ourselves. We have to be mature enough in ourselves that we can tolerate people disagreeing with us and rejecting us. And Christ said, if they don't want shake the dust off your feet and move on. You have to tolerate that rejection. If you emotionally can't yet tolerate that, you're not prepared to witness to the world. Because you'll be, you'll be seduced by the world to maintain those, those affections and connections. Yes? That might be for those who are going to something totally alien. But Christ, when he cast out the demons out of the people that were, had the chains strapped to them, said, no, you can't come with me. You need to go back to your family and friends and tell them what's happened in your life. And they, in that interaction, became healed and grew and understood what was happening. And so the work of the Spirit, they were seasoned, mature adults in in Christianity. They had just been healed. And all they had to tell was, I just was healed. Yeah, but he's telling them to go tell the people you already know you, that's already seen you and had experience with you, that knows the depravity of your character, the corruption of your soul, that's seen the scars and the self-cutting and the abuse and all the things you've been doing to yourself, and, and go show them that you found that you're now in peace with yourself, you've got your mind back, you have soundness of body and spirit, the leprosy's gone, the blindness is gone. These are people who already have a knowledge, and in seeing that, they will recognize something profound has happened, and you can say, it was Jesus Christ who did this for me. This is different than being a going on mission to to but to the that, world but that also is healing and we are we grow by doing that right but that's different than i think what the what's talking about going out into the unchurched worldly people to try to take them a message that could bring them to healing that, that you don't have that connection with there's no they won't see the contrast they won't know what your experience is yeah, but no, I think it's a great point. And the woman at the well was, went back and said the same thing. But she said to the people who knew her, and she basically just said, this man knows everything I've done, and they came to hear for themselves. So there's a place for that as well. But she wasn't going out to a, a different community. She was already associated with the people that's already in her network. But it, yeah, it's not just credibility, though. These, these witnesses were only witnessing in Christ's direction to people that were already networked with. They, they had a credibility with that they right. could actually relate to and be trusted. But the point I'm making is to go out and make new connections with new people that you have to have a certain level of maturity or else you'll be vulnerably drawn away by them. 
Yeah, so that's a, but I think it's a great point because I would have missed that. And I think it's a great aspect that where, so when we're, when we're just coming to Christ and we haven't developed that, there's still a, a field where we can, be, uh, we can begin witnessing, and that's to our community we're already networked to. And that's how we grow. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, and that's how we grow because one of the design laws, the law of exertion, as you exercise it, it gets stronger. Yeah, that's great. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of love and you left the, the glories of heaven and humbled yourself and became incarnate and, and dwelt among us for the purpose of, of not just being with us, but w- there was a mission there to connect us with a healing solution that would deliver us from our insecurities, our fears, our, our selfishness and restore us back into your design and in harmony with you. And we ask that you will use us now, fill us with your spirit of love and truth, Bring balance and healing to our lives that we can go out and be effective witnesses to you in this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen.